0: You mentioned about being on stage with Whitney in front of like 100,000 people. Yeah. Did you get much opportunity to actually get out on stage much before you put out your own record when you're just doing the session stuff or were you mostly in the studio all the time?
1: I was mostly in the studio. I traveled with Ray Parker Jr. I traveled with George Duke. I traveled with the Crusaders. So not a lot, but, but you know, from time to time, you know, with Patrice, obviously, in her band. So, so I got a chance to do it some. Not a lot, but some.
0: Yeah. Any particular memories other than the Whitney uh, from the road that stand out?
1: Yes. 1983, George Duke in Japan. Uh, we were shooting at that time what was a, a, a um, laser disc. That's what they were back then. And uh, so it's live recording with cameras and a whole shot. And one by one throughout the entire concert, stuff was falling apart. Bass rigs shutting off. Keyboard shutting off, just a variety of things. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. And so, <laughs> so the engineer, Tommy Vacari, is in the truck, and he goes, oh, no, this is terrible. And the Japanese producer turns around, but you can fix it, right? <laughs> so he ended up having to shoot it again. So that was one memory that was, that's fond memory that we had to, that the, the video that came out was actually the second one. Because the first one kind of went down in flames. <laughs> yeah. But well, that, was, that was a fond memory.
0: Were you planning on doing more shows anyway, or did you have to add?
1: Yeah, a show? We had, no, we had lots of shows uh, uh, scheduled. So, yeah. Yeah, we were planning to do a lot of them.
0: Was that your first trip to someplace like Japan?
1: That was my, oh, excuse me. I think that was my third trip to Japan that time with George.
0: Oh. Okay.
1: Yeah. I'd been with Ray Parker and, and I think that time with George. So I think it was my third trip to Japan.
0: I've always admired uh, Ray Parker. I mean, he's so versatile in the stuff he did before he went out on his own. What can you tell us about his style that you think is special?
1: Oh, uh, he mastered the art of making a song feel good. Uh, and that's probably the most important thing in the world. It's not the part. It's not the notes. It's Well, I shouldn't say it's not the part. It's not the notes, It's not the amount of notes, not the amount of playing. It's making the song feel good. And he mastered the art of making a song feel good. I'd say that's first and foremost his tra- and obviously choice of notes and harmony and rhythmic approach and all those things but he mastered the art of making a song feel good.
0: So when you got involved so early did that impact your, your school or, or did you have any uh, you know harassment from parents or anything like that you know too much time with music?
1: No in fact uh, you know I tell the story that uh, my first roadie was my mom with the uh, her car, her everyday driving car, was the biggest van that Chevy made because we had a band. The family had a band. I had friends. And so we would always load all our gear in her car. And so when I first started doing sessions, she would load all my all my gear in her truck and drop me off. And then she'd go to work. And after the session, she'd come and pick me up. So uh, my parents were and, and are you know, very supportive to this day. Uh, tell the story that when I was 16 years old, I think. For a Christmas present, my dad took his Christmas bonus and bought me a Gibson 335, which I obviously still have to this day. But at 16 years old, there was no guarantee I was going to be anything in music. But by faith, you know, he, he bought it. And, uh, and, you know, I, I, I think about that every, every day because, you know, you think about it, it's like, wait a minute, kid 16 years old, there's no guarantee he's going to be a good musician, you know? So uh, they were very, very supportive. Oh, that's great. Yeah.
0: Um, So let's talk about getting to your solo career. Mm -hmm. Um, I imagine you must have picked up so many tricks of the trade and so many, you know, inside lines on producing, on arranging, on recording, on everything by the time you went and date yourself. So what what was it like when you finally got to be Paul Jackson Jr. on record?
1: Scary. (laughs) I tell people all the time I'm an average race fan, like I said, car fan. You know, I can tell you that a Pro Stock car has a 500 cubic inch all aluminum engine. I can tell you it's got a Liberty five-speed transmission. You know, I can tell you that um, uh, the horsepower rating is about, I don't know, these days about 2,500, I guess. Um, I can tell you that a quarter mile is 5,280 feet. I can tell you a lot about a Pro Stock car, but I've never driven one. (laughs) So um, it's a similar thing when you're in charge of your own product as, you know, having one component, the guitar part of a song, is one thing. Being in charge of writing the song, playing the song, making sure the song sounds good recorded-wise, mixing the song, and presenting a finished product that is a representation of your, cre- your, personal, creative, uh, uh, your personal creativity, that's a whole other story. And that's another skill set that you have to work on. So, you know, fortunately, I've been doing Demos of my own for years, and buying tape we did tape back then, so buying reels of reels of tape and working on songs and writing terrible songs and getting turned down and worked on so i i I'd been working on that skill set for a while by the time I actually did get a record deal, but uh, it's it's a totally different hat that you put on
0: oh, I imagine there's so many elements to it, I mean even just posing for pictures and doing the press and oh
1: yeah well, a lot of variables you know
0: yeah, so it's it, Maybe early on, were you kind of like, "What am I getting myself into?" Or were you...
1: absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> like, "Wow, what am I doing?" So you know, you just go forward by faith and and hope it works out okay. You know,
0: are there any uh, particular memories you have about actually making that first record that stand out to you, and uh, how satisfied were you with the final product?
1: I was actually very satisfied. Um, one thing I remember was I'd never mixed a record. And so I was thinking, man, okay, like, it sounds okay, but man, when we mix this record, it's going to be amazing because you go in the studio and you mix it. And I remember mixing the record, and it sounded like a little bit better version of the finished tracks. And I was like, hmm. So I guess mixing doesn't change it into a whole other song. You know, it's, it's uh, I guess maybe I better make sure that the song is, is all the way there before we get to the mixing stage. I remember that. But uh, you know, the first record got nominated for a Grammy and, and kind of really confirmed that I was in the right direction. So uh, I was really happy with it.
0: Uh, and did you tour on that one record?
1: Limited amount. I, I played some live dates, a few, but not as many as, as I probably could have.
0: TV, videos?
1: Uh, videos, did a few videos, yeah, did some videos. Not a lot of TV, a little bit of TV. Uh, I remember being featured artist in the first Soul Train Awards. That was kind of fun. That was a lot of fun, myself with George Duke and some other folks. So that was a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, you know, I probably in retrospect, I probably, if there was a way to be in the studio and tour at the same time, that would have been the best way to do it.
0: How much did you have to slow down your session work to do your own record?
1: I was actually, yeah, I was able to keep doing things and writing for television and other things that I was working on. So fortunately, yeah, I was I was able to keep, you know, keep a lot of things in the air at that time.
0: And so, of course, you ended up doing, I think, uh, you're up to eight albums now. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, is, is there any one of those eight? Uh, let's not talk about the most recent yet, but okay. the first seven. Is there any of those that is there one of those that's your favorite for some reason? Or are they all your babies?
1: Probably of those first seven, probably Still Small Voice. Because of the song Still Small Voice, uh, the, uh, the uh, biblical connection there. And also, it had "It's a Shame" on it, which uh, uh, was a big single for me. So that was uh, that was a big thing, and and uh, so probably still "Small Voice" would be uh, of those seven probably the most memorable.
0: I'm guessing probably the most involved to put together was the duets.
1: Actually, yes, logistically, but fortunately. Um, uh, we have a lot, you know, have a lot of relationship, a lot of relation, you know, we have good relationship with with a lot of guys. So getting Howard Hewitt, you know, was easy, and and you know, calling George Duke and Sheila E. was, you know, was, you know, because people I work with all the time, Naji, and then uh, my producer uh, Ollie Brown grew up in Detroit, so he grew up with Earl clue. So getting a clue on there was pretty easy, and and then I'd work with Jeff Lorber and different folks. So fortunately, it was just an outgrowth of relationships. I had already had working a lot with Tom Scott, not only on his records, but also motion pictures that he scored. And so getting Tom, so it was actually not as difficult as one might think. It was kind of just calling your buddies and say, Hey, I'm working on a record. Can you come and play? You know?
0: Nice. It's always good when it works out like that.
1: Yeah. It was a good thing. Um,
0: anyone come to mind that you would say is sort of an eccentric genius that you worked with?
1: Hmm. Probably most of the people that I work with, <laughs> yeah,
0: uh, I think it's everybody
1: has own, uh, you know their own quirkiness, quirkiness. if you will, and uh, I think, and I think I figured out why. When you become a musician, you spend hours and hours and hours and hours by yourself just practicing, or and you spend lots of time with other people that do exactly what you're doing. So, interpersonal skills, uh, communicative st- skills, um, dealing with people, dealing with situations—you don't do a lot of that. <laughs> You're spending, you know, and I think that that has manifests its way in 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 other, you know, in other ways in terms of people's personalities. So, um, I think that's a reason for that. So, I would say that most of my friends who are musicians are a little bit left of center.
0: <laughs> um. Looking back at all those folks that you worked with, mm-hmm. is there, was there any project that you turned down or that you weren't able to do that you kind of wish you were able to do?
1: Yes, there was one, one big one. Uh, the, the, let's see, it was in 87. It was the, is that the Thriller Tour? Might've been the Thriller Tour. In, uh it was one, no, it was Victory Tour for Michael Jackson in 1987. Uh, David Williams had some commitments, so he wasn't going to be able to join the tour for about six or seven months. And they actually asked me to go. And I couldn't go for two reasons. Number one, I had just gotten the record deal for, which turned out to be, I came to play. And my daughter was born in 1988. And I said, I didn't want to go on the road and come back. And, and a year later, and my daughter says, Hey, who is this guy? So, uh, I turned it down. I wish I'd have been able to do both, but Hey, you know what? It, it worked out. Okay. I have a great, Relationship with a great daughter, and I'm still recording, so and still got to work a lot with Michael. So, you know, it's all good.
0: And of course, now if she ever gets out of line, you can always use that,
1: you know. (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How would you describe Michael Jackson from your experience in working with him?
1: Genius. If I had to put in a word, musical genius. Um, For a person that didn't play an instrument, he had a lot of music running around in his head. And he was an avid uh, user of recording things. If he had a song idea, he'd put it down. And he would, you know, scribble it out on a piece of paper or, you know, sing it onto a tape recorder or sing it onto a, uh, what do you call it, a voice memo thing. So so he would put rhythmic ideas and he would have melody ideas and he would have chord ideas all in his head and would work hard until he got out what he heard in his head. So uh, that's that's one of the things I really appreciated about working with him.
0: And was he did he seem to be as much of a sort of workaholic and perfectionist as
1: everyone says? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, his success was no accident. You know, he worked harder than most people. The lion's share of people. In fact, my buddy, Ricky Miner, who I work with a lot. uh, We just actually did the Oscars. Ricky was the musical director on the Oscars. Ricky, a few years ago, wrote a book called There's No Traffic on the Extra Mile. And uh, the mindset is, is to have what other people don't have. Uh, you got to be willing to do what other people won't do. So uh, that was Michael Jackson, really, in in a nutshell.
0: Right. Like the old saying to try harder. Yeah. Whoever tries hardest is probably going to be more successful. Yeah. Um, What's it like? You know, obviously you've built up. You talked about the duets. There must be a certain um, camaraderie and sort of kinship among your fellow session musicians. And what's that sort of uh, fraternity like?
1: It's fun. Uh, I was talking to Jay Graydon, and uh, he said something that I didn't realize. He said that we were alive during a period of time where we got to play on a lot of hit records just as sidemen. And you got to remember, like in the 30s, 40s, and, and even 50s, it was guys in bands, you know, it was big bands or it was, you know, like uh, reviews or, or whatever, who they might record a record together and then they'd go on the road and uh, or they were in the band. So they the whole band would come in the studio and then they'd go back on the road. But there weren't a lot of studio musicians. And then there became the uh, staff musician like I remember Bobby Bryant senior trumpet player he was the first African American staff musician at NBC in the NBC orchestra. So you had staff guys who would play with whoever came into town or whoever was on on a particular show. So we got to participate in probably a you know and then by by the late 80s by and large because of drum machines and and solo producers and things it was really on the on the fast decline. So from about probably 19 60 65 to maybe about 1990, which you think about it is only a 25-year period Yeah, 25-year period, we got a chance to play on lots of different records and lots of different styles of music with lots of different people. And so there's a camaraderie where, you know we were just really blessed and, and doubly fortunate to where we got to do something that most people have, have never gotten a chance to do.
0: Absolutely. Paul, um, what is your take on the term or the genre of smooth jazz? So, I mean, at one time, it used to be it was just jazz, or maybe it was kind of jazz with some pop flavorings and -hmm. that kind of thing. But in the early 80s, Quiet Storm, smooth jazz became its own thing. And um, do you like being categorized in that, or do you see it as a misnomer? How do you feel about it?
1: Well, I don't really categorize, categorize myself as a smooth jazz musician nor do I categorize my music as smooth jazz. Uh, I just categorize it as music, you know? And I think they're different approaches. I think a lot of things are termed a certain way so people will kind of have a mindset of what they are. Like if I said chocolate cupcake as opposed to cake, you know, if I said chocolate cupcake, okay, I know it's about this big and I know it's chocolate and it'll probably have some chocolate, chocolate, chocolate frosting. You know, I think of hostess, but I don't want to go there. Um, as opposed to cake, where it could be a mousse cake, a chocolate mousse cake, it could be a Twinkie, it could be a lot of different things. So I think the term smooth jazz was really kind of to hone down the the um, the broad term. And so people will say, okay, well, if it's smooth jazz, I know it probably has a groove. I know it's probably R&B oriented um, and those kind of things. So I think it's really just a kind of a term to kind of like, hone in for the listeners uh, as to, you know, what the, what the initial approach is or, or kind of give them an idea of what they'd be listening to.
0: How much creative freedom did the labels
1: give you? Oh, pretty much infinite. You know, I mean, you, you have to, you have to have uh, freedom of creative expression. You know, when you think about it, um, back when West Montgomery reported, recorded Fly Me to the Moon and, and all those tunes, uh, for, um, for uh, oh gosh, wake up Jackson, uh, for a CTI, for Creed Taylor. Um, he was looked at as being a little bit of a sellout from his bebop days, you know, but it's just a different expression with a different way. So, and he had creativity and that's something Creed Taylor wanted to try and he wanted to try. So, so or something he did, I don't know if he wanted to try or not. So in terms of of, of myself, well, now I have You know, infinite creativity because I have my own label. But even when I was on Atlantic and Blue Note, infinite creativity, just try stuff, just make it good. You know, that's always my goal is not to make it in a genre, just to make it great. You know,
0: I think there might be more pressure on jazz musicians than any other genre in terms of, you know, making accessible music. You know, and you look at all of the greats I can think of from Herbie Hancock to um, Stanley, who you mentioned, to um, uh, Bob James, whoever it is. Um, you know, I think they've possibly had to make some concessions so they sell more or so the music's more easily accessible and maybe the labels sometimes pressure them to do that. I don't know, but it just seems to me that of all the genres, jazz has been the most pushed to kind of like do something a little
1: safer. Um, maybe, you know, I think, I think a lot of it has to do with timing and I think a lot of it. Just has to do with personal taste i think when stanley clark rec- recorded school days i don't think that he thought that hey this is going to be like uh one of my most successful projects ever nor do i think he said okay i got to make sure this is more rock and roll or funkier so more people can uh can experience it i think he just said hey i want to make the song i wrote the song school days and let's give it a shot you know interesting thing about stanley clark if you look at a lot of old atlantic a lot of old atlantic uh, projects, there were two rhythm sections. One, obviously, was Bernard Purdy and Chuck Rainey. And there was another uh, rhythm section that included a young drummer by the name of Billy Cobham and a young bass player by the name of Stan Clark. And I asked Stanley about that one day. He says, oh, yeah, we, you know, we did these records and, and stuff. And he had a chance to record with Donny Hathaway and a lot of the um, a lot of the Atlantic artists, a lot of different artists in New York. But he was part of that whole thing. So I think all of those things came into uh, play, you know, in in his uh, playing as a as a as a solo artist. So I think, um, you know, in terms of pressure, I never feel any pressure to to uh, to have something that's accessible. I just make the music that I like to make.
0: Mm-hmm. What's your what's your uh, affinity for funk music? Because it seems like every record you've done. Has at least one or two cuts that's pretty funky. So it's like you always want to get it in there. Um, how close to your heart is funk?
1: Well, very close because I approach rhythm like a science. And um, to me, uh, you know, you can never, well, like I said, you never master anything, but I approach it as important as everything else. A lot of people don't treat it, I think um, historically, guitar players are taught in the wrong way. Uh, We're not taught to make songs feel good. We're taught to play scales, and we're taught what the chords are, and we're taught how to solo and things like that. And then they kick you out and say, okay, the rest you figure out, as opposed to realizing that you are an integral part of the puzzle and your part is to make the song feel good. So my affinity for rhythm is dissecting that into its elements, into its rhythmic elements, into its harmonic elements, into its placement elements, and realizing how that falls and how that can make a song feel better, and so, uh, you know, I, I approach it as something that's equally as important as everything else that I could do on the guitar, and that translate, I guess, translates into, you know, into funk, you know, if you will, and you know, and it, it's it's approach and it's a mindset. So, um, but that's how I approach it.
0: Yeah, and do you subscribe to what, is, what a lot of people said that it's mostly about the spaces in funk?
1: That's part of it. It's about what you play, it's what you don't play, it's where you play it, it's where it sits uh, in relation to every other instrument, including the vocals. Uh, So all those things are important. Uh, I'll give you an example. example. Uh, Working on a project with Adina Manziel right now, and we recorded a song, and the arranger wanted me to play a part right where the vocal came in. And I said, you know what? I will play the part, but I'm going to." I'm going to delay it by a beat and a half because I don't want to start playing where her voice starts, where you hear her voice for the first time. So all those little things are very, very important.
0: The Subtleties.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, well, that is a good lead in, uh, Paul, to your most recent solo record, which was uh, stories from Stomp and Willie. Yeah. And I understand we, we talked about George Dew, passed away a few years ago, very sad, but what an incredible body of work and blessing he gave us all. And the music that he enriched us with. Um, you worked with him a lot. I know this was kind of dedicated to him. Can you talk about that song?
1: Sure. Uh, Stompin' and Willie" was a nickname that George gave me. and uh, so this record was dedicated to him, uh, and then each song has a story behind it, just you know like for instance, there's a song I wrote with Jeff Lorber um, Ocean I think it's called "Ocean Explorer," I think it's yeah. and it's the first song I did in 11 you know, I've never done a song in 11. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jeff came and said, hey, I have this song. It's an 11. You want to try it? Sure. You know, or the approach for different things like jazz police and things. And then when I did, um, you know, that's what she said. Uh, that was a saying that George would always use around the studio. And uh, I remember the song from from the record. I love the blues. She heard my cry. So. I said, I want to tackle this song, and, and that was a lot of fun doing. It was also, I Love the Blue She Heard My Cry, was the first project that Byron Miller recorded with George Duke when he joined the band. And so for him to come and play on my version was, was a double blessing. So um, it was just, you know, it was a labor of love, and, uh, you know, like I said, expressing myself not only musically, but, you know, telling stories and telling the impetus behind each song, you know, I thought it was important, and it was fun.
0: Yeah, it's a great record. It might definitely right up there uh, for me with all your records might be my favorite because I'm partial to funk. But um, <laughs> definitely your funkiest record overall, I would have to say you agree.
1: Uh, not necessarily. No, no, no not necessarily. Uh, I've done things before that are funkier. It's just just a different approach, you know, just trying to say different things, you know. And uh, I don't know. I don't think I'd agree with that necessarily. I think, it, you know, I think I came to play was pretty funky. Um you know, just I wouldn't say the most, just I just say the the, the next chapter in the in the book of Paul Jackson, Jr.
0: <laughs> I like the way you threw in some rockier kind of licks, you know, along with the, the jazz licks and just the variety is very cool.
1: Yeah. Well, like I said, it's, you know, it's all music and it's all expression an expression, a personal expression of creativity. And so you pull different things out of different skill sets to to affect the whole presentation. And that's that's kind of approach.
0: What did did the Duke impart on you musically or even spiritually?
1: Well, uh, George's thing was, number one, like you said, make it feel good. If you're going to, you know, always try to say something and uh, keep working hard and keep pulling and keep drawing and don't ever be satisfied with, you know, the fact that you've been successful at this or successful at that or even that you're good at this or that. Always push for something better. You know, always try to make it better. And George was always inspiring me to be better. So that's, for me, that's really what I got from him.
0: And uh, the closing song. The um, <laughs> Willie Ganga? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the Reach, reach For It uh, tribute kind of. Yeah. You must have had a blast doing that one.
1: I did. Uh, it was, we just wrote it in the studio and the Willie Ganga was uh, George's pseudonym when he worked on other people's records, Uh, he said that that that's, I think he was on Columbia or CBS and they didn't want him playing on a lot of different records. So he would, you know, pick choice projects and on those records, he would, he was known as DeWilly Gonga. So uh, uh, yeah, so uh, I I titled the song DeWilly Yeah,
0: I I don't have all the credits, Paul. Who who did most of the uh, vocals on that?
1: That was uh, Kenny Hathaway. Donnie's daughter, one of Donnie's daughters, a buddy of mine by the name of Nick Cooper, and my daughter, Lindsay Jackson, the, the daughter I told you about that was born during the uh, the I Came to Play.
0: Oh, she's she's, a, she's musical. How many kids do you have?
1: I have two kids, yeah, two kids. Are they both musical? They both are. My son is an avid writer of EDM music, and my daughter, she sings very well and runs Pro Tools and knows how to do Sibelius, and she has a degree, actually, in music from UCLA, so... They are both very musical. They make me proud. Wow.
0: Talk about chips off the old block. Hey. So let's talk about the most recent uh, record with uh, Jeff Lorber. It's the third jazz funk soul, I think, uh, that he's done.
1: Yeah.
0: But first one with you. So tell us how you got involved in in that uh, trio and project.
1: Well, it's kind of a bittersweet story. Um, Jeff and Everett were doing shows with Chuck Loeb. And Shaughnessy said, "Well, why don't you guys record the, the franchise?" And so they did. They did the record Jazz Funk Soul, and then uh, they did another record called More Serious Business. Well, at the same time that that uh, Chuck was playing with Jeff and Everett, he was also in foreplay. And if there was a conflict where he had a foreplay gig, I would go and sub with Jeff and Everett. And then, unfortunately, he became ill. Sometimes he felt like playing. Sometimes he doesn't. Didn't. If he felt like playing, no problem. But if he didn't feel like playing, I would go and sub for it. And then unfortunately, subsequently, he passed away. And so uh, Jeff and Everett took some time and thought about it and said, you know, we think Chuck would want us to continue the franchise. And you're the guy that we, we want to be in the band. And so I said, "I said yes. And so, uh, you know, we continued on and then released his release and they released Life and Times.
0: I love the record. I mean, I've been a Jeff Loeber fan ever since, you know, the the fusion days back in the 70s. So yeah. um, he's impressive. Uh, what was it like to work on this project?
1: Oh, it was a blast because I'd done a lot of work with a lot of writing with Jeff Lorber, you know, over the years on several of my records and several of his records. So we just kind of kept going. And then I'd worked with Everett a lot with George and and on uh, different situations and stuff. So it was it was a labor of love. It was a lot of fun with these guys you know, being in the studio. So uh, it, it just it, for me, it was a, you know, a good creative time and a chance to push myself musically. And and uh, so it was, it was it was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, and his, his music, too, like you've been talking about, definitely feel-good music.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, he has the unique, and, and so did Chuck, both of them have the unique ability to infuse a lot of bebop within the confines of a groove tune, you know, and so that's, that's one of the things I enjoy about this group, is we can take it anywhere harmonically and still keep it, you know, feel-good music.
0: And how do you decide when there's going to be a
1: guitar solo? Well, let's see, I think the guitar solo is in every single song, so that's an easy one. how
0: about the extent of the guitar solo i'm sorry what how about the extent of the guitar solo
1: it's on a song by song basis you know it's like where it goes what i'm trying to say what the chords are where the song is going so just a song by song basis you know i let the song the song dictates everything you know somebody asked me once um how do you come up with a good guitar part i said you start by writing a good song And that's really, you know, so the song really dictates, you know, everything that goes on.
0: And what inspires you to compose?
1: Uh, Just things I'm hearing. It could be, somebody asked me that the other day. How do you write a song? It can start from the bottom up or it can start from the top down. Sometimes I'll hear a melody. Sometimes I hear a chord progression. Sometimes I hear a bass line. Sometimes I just hear a drum beat. And so it can emanate from a variety of different things.
0: And have you written songs with lyrics as well?
1: I always work with a lyricist. You know, I'm a pretty creative guy, but to the extent that I can try to do everything, I said, eh, let me write with people that are, that are great at that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so I just want to emphasize to everyone out there, uh, this record came out earlier this year.
1: It's uh-huh. phenomenal.
0: Yeah. And also, should definitely see you guys. What's, it, what's the show like?
1: Well, the show is, you know, usually, you know, between uh, 75 and 90 minutes. And yeah, the show is a lot like the record in that we all play and we play off of each other. But the good thing is, is that live, you don't have to shorten the solos. You know, you're not within, you don't have to say, okay, we got to stay within the confines of four minutes and 30 seconds for radio or four minutes and 30 seconds for the sake of, you know, whatever. And so there's a lot more interplay. There's a lot more freedom, uh, a lot more dynamics in terms of, you know, the ebb and flow of of live music. So it's, you know, it's a lot of fun to to, uh, listen to, a lot of fun to play. I know that.
0: how much more extensively are you guys going to
1: be going out? Uh, just about every weekend for the rest of the year. Uh, we're going out doing festivals and a few clubs and stuff. So, and then we're doing another cruise next year. We did the Dave cause cruise this year. So doing a smooth jazz cruise next year. So got a lot of stuff coming up, which is great. That is great.
0: Um, are there any guitarists that have come along in the past five, 10 years that impress you?
1: Oh yeah. Oh,
0: anyone in particular?
1: Adam Aganti who played with, uh, Marcus Miller a lot. Um, uh, John Jubu Smith, uh, Chris Payton, Isaiah Sharkey. Isaiah Sharkey is an amazing young guitar player. Amazing. Um, who else? Been um, a few guys, but those are the ones that I think of off the top of my oh. head. Uh, Eric Walls, amazing guitar player. Um, those are the guys that come to, come to mind immediately. Do you have a particular solo or musical
0: statement, if you will, that you kind of reflect back on? You're like, I killed that. That is just a special place in my mind.
1: Hmm. No. I don't think I've played it yet. Uh, (laughs) In terms of, you know, where I go, man, that was just so amazing. I just need to jump back and kiss myself, like James Brown would say. (laughs) Um, Not yet. Don't think so. Not yet. I'm uh, mm-hmm. still working toward it. You know, I think when I do, you know, get to the point where I said, man, that's I killed that soul. Then it's probably time to quit because <laughs> I tell people all the time. Once you feel like you've mastered the instrument, you need to you need to stop because <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to learn anything else, you know. But so I don't think I have played it yet.
0: Uh, well, if that's the case, I hope you don't ever play it because I want you to keep going.
1: Well, thank you. Um-
0: what, what are you most proud of looking back of all your accomplishments in your, in your career?
1: Uh, if you want to say proud, I think I'm really proud of a couple of things. And pride is probably the wrong word, probably grateful. I want to say I'm grateful to the Lord that he allowed me to have a fun career. There's a description in the Bible that says your gift will make room for you and bring you before great men. And playing the guitar has taken me all over the world. It's taken me to the Grammys, the Emmys, the Oscars, the Tonight Show, American Idol. It's taken me to South Africa, Japan, uh, Paris, Portugal, South America, you know, the guitar before, you know, at this point, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. It's maybe one of the most recorded musicians, not only in, on the guitar, but in the history of music as a musician. So it's probably that the Lord allowed me to do that. And the other thing is grateful to my parents that they allowed me to pursue it. You know, I, I had a lot of friends who their parents say, okay, well, no, that music thing, you know, musicians are always on drugs or, you know, music, you know, you better have something to fall back on or go get you a real job. My parents never did that. The only thing they told me was to keep studying. And so probably uh, proud is probably the wrong word. Probably the better word is grateful. Grateful to the Lord that he allowed me to do it and grateful to my parents that they took a chance and sacrificed what they did to allow me to do it. Well,
0: wow. So what's next, Paul?
1: Well, what's next is uh, working on a new record right now, which will be out sometime in the early part of next year, which will be called More Stories. Yes! It yeah, will be called More Stories. Uh, actually going to Atlanta this week to play at a club called Sweet Food Lounge. That's this Thursday for their Thursday night jazz series. Uh, doing more dates with Jazz Funk Soul. Uh, get back to USC the second, third week of August to do more instruction, more teaching. And so a bunch of stuff, you know, got some recording sessions here that are coming up. Um, more stuff with a, with Adina Manzel, And um, um, so a lot of good stuff.
0: Yeah. So 2020 for a,
1: an album or? Yeah, 2020 for a new for a new CD, new, new project. Yep. Nice. And
0: some of the usual suspects are helping you out?
1: Don't know yet. You know, I, I always let the music di- dictate who's on it. So I'm not really sure, I know I will be, I've already started writing with Jeff, so I know Jeff will be on it. But mm-hmm. uh, other than that, not really sure.
0: Um, would you ever play any of your own tracks on one of the Lurber dates or do you keep it totally separate?
1: Well, well the Jazz Funk Soul uh, franchise, we all bring a song from our respective projects. So you get to hear Jeff's song, you get to hear an Everett song, you get to hear a Paul Jackson Jr. song, and then the rest is all of our songs. But the good thing about the Jeff songs or the Everett songs or the Paul songs is other people are playing on them. So in a Paul song, you'll hear a Jeff solo, you hear an Everett solo. And same thing in, in an Everett song, you hear a Paul solo and a Jeff solo and, and, and so forth. You know, so we do bring our own songs, but the, 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 the mandate, if you will, is there has to be something for the other guys to play. You know? Do you have
0: someone sit in on bass or you just don't have bass?
1: We have a bass player and a drummer, a different bass player and drummer for each gig. Gotcha.
0: Any uh, message you'd like to get out to your fans?
1: Sure. Absolutely. Uh, scripture in the Bible, it says that if you acknowledge the Lord in all of your ways, he will direct your path. The Bible says the steps of a righteous man are ordered by God. So anything you're doing, if you acknowledge the Lord, he's going to make sure that you go in the right direction. And the other thing is, like we talked about earlier, is if you want to have what other people don't have, you got to be willing to do what other people won't do. You know, and people will call you crazy, people will call you myopic, people will call you a nerd, people will call you antisocial, and uh, they will call you that all the way to the bank.
0: Got to let that noise be noise,
1: go right through it, push oh, it through. The thing that I always say is, Lord bless you real good and stay funky.
0: <laughs> I like that. Hey, it's been a, a blast, Paul. Thank you so much. Really that is great. Yeah, hey, back at Truth and Rhythm Headquarters man, you can just feel the energy and positivity coming off that guy. It's a good thing he is so grounded. I guess you'd have to be in order to log so many recording sessions, but he'd also have to be in order to continue taking in stride working with all those legends. I think that strong foundation of parental support played an important role, but wow, what a professional. And I love how he continues to be so passionate about his craft and continues to push for new musical horizons. It's hard not to root for a guy like that. And so I wanna, again, thank, sincerely, Paul Jackson Jr. for sharing all these stories with truth and rhythm. Also, as always, I wanna thank you, the viewers and listeners, for your continued support and interest in the show. Much appreciated. If you haven't already done so, subscribe. Subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff uh, channel on YouTube, that's where Truth and Rhythm lives, and you'll get the show before anyone else does. You'll get inside line and what's coming up next, and some other goodies. So it's free. Subscribe, much appreciated. Support these jazz, R&B, and funk artists and this program. Speaking of which, can you can even go a step farther than that now and actually support with a little donation, helping keep the lights on for this program. Everything costs money: the servers, the the domains. Um, you know, there's lots of expenses that go into this. And so anything you can contribute is much appreciated to keep these stories flowing. You do that by going to the uh website. and the right-hand side, on every page, there's a uh, link to, to contribute and support the program. Much appreciated. And uh, if you do a sizable donation, definitely will mention you on the program. That's a promise. Speaking of promises, if you write me at at scottg.funkandstuff.net, I promise that I'll respond. Write me just about music, to shoot the breeze, anything that's musically on your mind, what you liked about the program, who else you might want to see, what your favorite show is, all that good stuff. Let's talk. It's an interactive two-way deal. So this is your program for the true funk, jazz, and r and lovers out there. And we keep growing in numbers so uh tell a friend tell family they will appreciate it who can't help but love this music that touches our souls and moves us so with that as always this is scott dr gx saying keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one